Genesis chapter 10. Genesis 10. Now, we are picking up in the story of Genesis in a section referred to as the table of nations. And as you look at this passage, at first glance, it appears like a desert wasteland. I said to Katie as I was researching this passage, I said, honey, I have no idea what I'm going to say this week uh, because it just seems like there's just names and etc. But I've always enjoyed watching those documentaries that depict the diversity of life within the desert. It's varied. It's quite alive. And I think you'll find the same to be true here for Genesis chapter 10. And so what is a a genealogy, a list of 70 or so names and nations that are represented, have to do with the story of Genesis and have to do with our world today? I think you'll find it's actually quite relevant. So let's consider a very current issue. All right, so this past week, ABC canceled the sitcom series Roseanne, which had returned to primetime audiences after two decades of a hiatus and was enjoying enormous ratings. But that all, of course, came crashing down on Tuesday. ABC abruptly canceled Roseanne hours after Roseanne Barr, the lead actress, as many of us know, posted a tweet that could be described in no other way but racist about Valerie Jarrett. Now, I'm not going to repeat that quote to you. It wouldn't be appropriate to do so from the pulpit. But I think, as you would expect, when a story like this breaks out in our own day and age, this was like pouring gasoline upon an already hot-burning cultural fire. Because issues of race, diversity, intolerance amongst people from different backgrounds are constantly barraging the news cycle. I don't know if we go through a week where we don't hear something about this. Why is that? Why can't we all just get along? Al Mohler rightly notes a prominent question many worldviews and meta-narratives are asking right now is the question of human diversity. You see, human diversity is a fact of life that we will all interface with. There's a a word, globalization, which kind of gives us this understanding that people and populations were originally pretty sedentary, so they weren't interacting with the level of diversity that we're interacting with today. But now, people from all different parts of the world seem to be neighbors next door to one another. In fact, I'm from the city of Chicago. Um, Anyone else from a city center in the room? A couple of us, okay. So when you live in this city, it's not uncommon, say you're riding on the train, to uh, be in a train with people that look very different than you, speak a very different language than you speak, who come from a, a different cultural background than you come from, and I would say who like to eat different food than I like to eat, but that's not true because I'm a human garbage disposal. <laughs> Except for octopus. That's disgusting. <laughs> now, Moeller observes that while the world wrestles with the issue of diversity, it also provides uh, toxic approaches to dealing with it. One of those being racism. You see, racism is a story that seems to be as old as human history, and it's also a story that never seems to go away. It is the belief that human beings have permanent differences that can be measured, compared, and then placed along some kind of spectrum of superiority and inferiority. 
And I just want to note, racism is the very antithesis of the gospel of Jesus Christ in everything that Christians should know, believe, teach, and love, and live. There are other distortions, but I don't want to focus on the distortions because I believe the pure word of God gives us a better understanding of the importance of diversity. And to prove that point, we're actually going to read a text from the book of Genesis that was written by a non-21st century, non-white, non-English speaking individual who lived in a time writing a letter to a bunch of freed slaves. But God's word has something to say to us, even though someone like that wrote this book. Because God's word is living, it's active, it's timeless, and it's relevant to our day and age too. And we have something to learn from this guy, Moses, about the issue of diversity. So let's read the book uh, chapter together. Chapter 10, there's going to be a lot of names that don't sound familiar to you. But like I said, it's all about diversity this morning. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons who were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, Tyres. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togarmath. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodanim. From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, Canaan. The sons of Cush, Siva, Havilah, Sapta, Ramah, Saptica. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kela, and Reason between Nineveh and Kela. That is the great city Egypt, Father Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, uh, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn Heath, and the Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvadites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of Canaanites extended to Sidon in the direction of Gerar and Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adama, uh, Zeboim, of, so, uh, of as far as Laisha, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber, and Eber was born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For in the days the earth, or his days, the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadorim, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Jokta. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha the direction of Sefer uh, to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, lands, their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. All right. Now, 
Let's begin by making some big picture observations about this text. Look with me at verse 32, and it'll explain to us the purpose of Genesis chapter 10. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So we understand that Genesis 10 is in the Bible to talk to us about the repopulation of the earth after the flood. I think you can imagine what happened. Uh, Shem, Ham, Japheth leave the ark. They have children. Their children have children. Their children's children have children, and so on and so forth. And they start branching out and diversifying. And over the years, those children of descendants become families and clans and tribes and nations. Some of those nations then become expansive empires, and some are making treaties, some are having wars, and some even become the bitter enemies of Israel. Now, it's likely that Genesis 10 was written when Moses was advanced in years. It's like a written map that he's giving the people of Israel as they're standing on the precipice of the promised land, about to go in and take that promised land. It's selective. Moses doesn't give us every nation on the earth at this time, so that's why you read in Japheth's uh, descendants, for example, of Gomar's sons and Javan's sons, but you don't read about all the other sons. And it's this snapshot picture, like I said, of those surrounding countries as Joshua is about to enter. Verse 19 gives us the boundaries of the promised land. In the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Laisha. Now, perhaps an illustration would help us to understand this map idea. Do I have any risk players in the room? Or former risk players? Raise your hand with pride. Risk. <laughs> what a game. The game where you can lie, cheat, and steal, and manipulate, and it's not wrong. The game where best friends become bitter enemies. The game where on more than one occasion, husband and wife had had to pursue couples therapy after playing. (laughs) And did I mention, it's also my favorite game. Now, I do want to say one thing. If you are ever going to play a game of risk, never, ever, ever, ever make a treaty with Mark Schrager. He says that Blitzkrieg is his favorite tactic. And I'm still a little salty after that game. Now, if you've ever played a game, you know that it contains this large map, and the object of the game is one thing, world domination. Each player is given armies of different colors, blue, red, black, yellow, green. And the first step in the game is you look over the map and you just start placing characters one by one, taking over territories, Great Britain, Greenland, Japan, India, Middle East. And then when all of the armies are placed, the game begins. But there is this moment before the game begins where everyone's standing around the map, looking over the lay of the land, thinking to themselves, oh boy, she looks pretty strong there in Asia. I better make sure I do something about that so she doesn't get that whole territory. And then you're thinking in your head, I'm going to take over North America and then make my way down to South America. And so in this moment of silence, everyone's still friends. And then you roll the dice and all bets are off. Genesis 10 is like that moment before. 
It's a snapshot of the ancient world showing how the nations are arrayed in and around the Middle East, especially around the Holy Land. It's also a world history 101, if you will. Uh, scholars have looked at this passage and scoured over it, and they've discovered that this seems to be one of the only historical documents of its nature that explains how the earth had spread about in this early era of history. So it's accurate, it's historical, and Moses lists 70 separate nations or names in the genealogy which are representative of people, cities, tribes. This chapter is one big family tree, as you'll see, and explains the origin and spread of nations. Now, Let's consider the broad outline of this chapter. If you're looking at a chapter like this, you might say to yourself, well, this is really hard to divide out, but it's actually very simple. There's three sons listed, and you partition out this chapter according to the names of the three sons. As we consider these lines, Warren Wiersbe offers some helpful words. He notes it's difficult to identify some of these nations and give them modern names. Over the centuries, nations can change their names, move to different locations, modify their languages, and even alter their racial composition through intermarriage. And I got to tell you, as I was reading commentaries on Genesis chapter 10, there was some really, really imaginative speculation going on. But we don't want to get off into that realm. So instead... We'll see what God's word's saying to us. We'll recognize some broad trends and we'll avoid some of the imaginative stuff. Let me put a map up on the screen for you to get a picture of this distribution. We'll begin with Japheth. Japheth's descendants fanned out to the north, the east, the west of the promised land. Uh, in the Israelite mind, these were the Gentile lands. They were distant nations. They were the uh, outer limits of civilization. So Japheth, we only see mention of 14 descendants, and it was because they were the most unknown to Moses and the Israelites at this time. But also you'll notice that they are the descendants who spread out the most. You might recall in Genesis 9.27, Noah prophesied, may God enlarged Japheth. So when you look at the world map, the descendants of Japheth would spread from India through Russia across the Mediterranean Sea into Europe and Scandinavia. Linguists tell us that there's this amazing similarity between the languages of Europe and Iran and India to the point that they believed that there was at one time a common language that the experts would call Indo-European. Well, how did that happen? Well, Moses tells us. Japheth's descendants. Now let's move on to Ham. His descendants get much more attention, 30 names mentioned. They spread out predominantly in North Africa, but also parts of the Middle East. And we particularly noted that the Canaanites occupied the promised land. It was all those names that sound like an exterminator's worst nightmare, Gergeshite, Hivite, Termite. The descendants of Ham are located in areas we have identified today as Egypt, Palestine, the Sudan, Saudi Arabia, and Yemen. Now, one important thing to note about the descendants of Ham is that they are the founders of the first great world civilizations. Egyptian, Babylonian, Assyrian, Sumerian, Hittite. 
And we read this parenthetical story about a son of Cush named Nimrod in verses 8 through 12. And one of the things that we note about him is that he is a great empire builder. We'll come back to him in a little bit. Finally, we come to Shem. Moses lists 26 descendants. These are the Semitic people who inhabited the modern-day Middle East, Iraq, part of Iran, eastern Saudi Arabia. In verse 21 and 24, you notice the name Eber, a significant name because that is the name where we get the general title Hebrew. Later in Genesis 14, 13, Abraham will be called for the first time Abraham the Hebrew. Peleg is also a significant name, which means division. Uh, We read in verse 25, for in his days the earth was divided. Well, what was this division that they're talking about? Again, I heard some really creative speculations about what that could mean, but any good Bible student knows that you allow context to dictate how you think about a passage. So what happens in Genesis chapter 11? The Tower of Babel. There's a scattering of people. In fact, in Genesis 11:8, the Bible tells us that the Lord dispersed them. Who? The nations. Because God told to the nations, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but the nations decided that they were going to gather together and make a great name for themselves. So God disperses them throughout the world. So we wouldn't have a table of nations if we didn't have a tower of Babel. And that explains why They all have their own language, clans, and nations. Now, still with me? The big question is, what does all this mean? I began this sermon discussing the issue of diversity and citing an instance uh, where people in the world deal with diversity in the wrong way, specifically racism. We also said that there's other distortions of diversity. But what is God's word telling us about diversity this morning in this chapter? I think there are four important lessons that we can see. The first lesson is an implication that you see from the beginning of Genesis. You'll see it thread all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament and then find its climax in the book of Revelation. And this implication is that God It's the God of the nations. He's not the God of one nation or several nations. He's not the God of the uh, Semitic people, but not the Hamatic people. He's not one God amongst many other gods. He is the God of all nations. He's the God of Australia, China, Japan, Germany, Uzbekistan, Chad, Togo, El Salvador, India, Canada, and yes, the United States of America. He is not more the God of the United States and less the God of Chile. He is the the God of all nations. And when Jesus returns, as we see in Matthew 24 and 25, he will physically, visibly, eternally rule the nations as their benevolent king. Now, do the nations want God to rule them? Well, Psalm 2 
tells us this in verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So while God is the God of the nations, it doesn't necessarily mean that the nations want God to rule them. Consider the name Nimrod. Now, when I think of the name Nimrod, I think of someone who's stupid. That guy was a real Nimrod. But when the Bible in the Hebrew uses this name, it means something like, let us rebel. So in verse 9, it tells us that Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man, which should call to mind, if you flip back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, a description of the Nephilim. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And what were the Nephilim like? Well, they were violent tyrants. And the phrase uh, used of Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, does not mean that he was a, a spiritually mature squirrel hunter. It's superlative language. It means that he was so skillful at hunting that even God took notice of his prowess. And then he becomes proverbial in a sense. In what cities did Nimrod build? Well, two stick out. Babylon and Nineveh. Now, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you understand that these two cities are bastions of human pride and justice, dehumanizing acts and rebellion against God. In fact, we read in the very next chapter that let us rebel will already be the operating mode of the city, Babel. Nimrod wanted to be a mighty king who makes a name for himself because he didn't understand the Italian proverb, once the game of chess is over, the king and the pawn both go back to the same box. What good is it to become the founder of a mighty kingdom if you do not know the living and true God? Fame, power, fleeting in the light of eternity. I recently was uh, working through some devotions with my daughter, Lexi. She's working on having a, a personal time with the Lord in her life. And I read along with her because, you know, when you're nine years old, sometimes understanding all the things the Bible is saying can be complicated. So we were reading the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, Jesus makes a very demanding statement about discipleship. Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, Lexi's a pretty sharp little girl. So she's asking the right questions. Does that mean that I have to give up certain things that I, I really want to do to follow Jesus? And does that mean that sometimes I have to do hard things that uh, I might be scared to do? Well, yes, absolutely. And then she says, well, is that worth it? So I said, well, let's read verse 36 and see if it's worth it. For what does it profit a man to, what? Gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. Oh, it's hard at 
nine years old to grasp the brevity of life. I, I told her that morning, I said, 70 isn't as old as you think. And she says, are you kidding me, Daddy? I mean, in Lexi's mind, 70-year-olds, you all were there when God was kicking Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. She thinks that at 34, I'm knocking on death's door already. So I tried to explain to her. I said, Lexi, 70 is like this big compared to eternity. Nimrod, what did it profit you to gain Babylon and Nineveh and yet lose your soul? I recently read that Mao Zedong, the powerful Chinese dictator viewed by many of his country to have been divine shortly before his death, said on several occasions, I am soon going to meet God. Alfredo Strassner ruled Paraguay as a dictator for 34 years. He had his name on over 10,000 streets and public places. In the year of 1989, he was deposed the day after the coup. Crews were out, removing his name from everything. Psalm 2 tells us that there will be only one king who will eternally rule over all of the nations. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make you for you a heritage of the nations, the ends of the earth, your possession. You see, there will have been, there will continue to be, there always will be nimrods. And I mean that in the doofus sense. That will rise up. But only God will eternally rule the nations. And thank God. Thank God that he will rule the nations because he's not a cruel dictator. He's a God who has a heart for the nations. Second implication, as we take just a couple of steps forward in the book of Genesis, we meet this man named Abraham, and Abraham is told that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We noted, too, that that number 70 is significant in Genesis chapter 10. You see, in Moses' day, that number 70 meant something like a comprehensive understanding So even though he's being selective with the nations that he's mentioning, he's using 70 as a number because he wants you to envision in your mind the nations. As you continue to trace the story forward through Abraham, at the end of Genesis, we see that Abraham now has 70 descendants becoming a microcosm of the nations. And then we move forward to the New Testament and Jesus sends out how many disciples? 70 to go preach the kingdom. At the end of all four gospels, go into all the world preaching the gospel. At the beginning of the book of Acts, and then the scriptures climax in this powerful um, vision from the apostle John. He sees an explosive worship scene where a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God is not washing his hands of the nations in Genesis. He's not saying, well, I'm just going to 
pick up with this guy Abraham and create this nation Israel and see if I can do a little better. He's calling out a nation to reach the unreached descendants of Shem, Ham, Japheth. Because God is a missionary God who cares about people from every tribe, tongue, nation, socioeconomic background, ethnicity, racial background. God cares about the people groups who don't know the name of Jesus. The International Mission Board tells us that there are at least 11,489 people groups in the world. So out of the 70 that are mentioned here, 11,489 people groups have emerged. And of those, 6,832 are by the best reckoning less than 2% Christian. And of those 6,832 people groups, 3,264 have no Christian witness. Friends, God is intensely interested in those 3,264 people groups who don't know Jesus because he's Lord of those people groups. He has a heart to reach them. So you ask, well, what, God, what is his plan for those 3,264 people groups with no Christian witness? That's a great question. The answer is you. The answer is me. The answer is every single believer who knows the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves his saving gospel message, is God's plan A and there's no plan B. Oswald Chambers, the creator of those powerful devotionals, my utmost for his highest, said, if my heart is right with God, every human being is my neighbor. Now, what, if anything, does the Table of Nations tell us about diversity? It tells us that we all come from one human family, and it's interesting because more and more scientists are arguing that race is a genetically irrelevant concept. How do we know this? Well, we've discovered DNA and we've discovered genetics, so kind of any social or historical perspective that suggests that there's genetic superiorities between so-called racial groups has been genetically disproven. But you want to know what's really sad about all of this? We didn't need to discover genetics to know that. It's right here in Genesis chapter 10. All peoples come from Adam and Eve, and then from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're all one big family. That's what the Bible tells us. But let's be honest for a moment. While we all do come from the same genetic family, there are real differences between us. There are phenotypical differences, skin color, body shape, hair type, face shape. There's cultural differences. Some of us uh, prize our independence, particularly in the West. Others of us are concerned with honor and respect and family ties. And let's be clear about this. These differences are not evil. They should not be ignored or deprecated. But, what happens to diversity in an unglued, sinful world? I've seen some incredibly ugly things, and I haven't seen it get as ugly as it can get. Growing up in Chicago, I saw racial infighting between black and white, Polish and American, Arabic and American. Essentially, anyone that was different sat next to one another found a reason to dislike one another. 
on September 11th, I remember seeing a mob of angry, angry rioters march to a local mosque to vandalize and destroy the property. When I was only 10 or 11, an African-American family moved onto our block, the Williams family. They were a beautiful family. And one person on the block sent around a petition to all the people to sign to in request of the seller not to sell that home to them. <laughs> I was so proud of my dad when he was approached about the petition for telling that guy where he could stick the position. <laughs> I could go on. I really could, but I'll get worked up. You see, sin brings out the ugliest depths of the human heart. It's brought out ugliness in my heart. I have said things, thought things, done things against someone who was created in the image of God. In Mark 7, 20 and 23, Jesus explained what defiles a person. What comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality. You want an answer for me too, right here? Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within. That's what defiles a person. See, the problem of racism will not be fixed until the unglued human heart is fixed. We might stop hating one group of people, but rest assured, some other group will find its way into the cultural crosshairs. But oh, no, 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 we're going to be tolerant. We're going to be accepting of anything and everyone and everything. Well, friends, that's mindless acceptance. That's not real acceptance. Ravi Zacharias, writing in his book, Jesus Among the Other Gods, wrote, what the person means by saying you must be open to everything is really you must be open to everything that I am open to and anything that I disagree with, you must disagree with too. He continues, Indian culture has the veneer of openness, but it is highly critical of anything that hints at challenging it. It is no accident that within that so-called tolerant culture was birthed the caste system. All-inclusive philosophies can only come at the cost of truth. But without hesitation, I can tell you this, that the Bible provides the only clear answer to the question of diversity because it preserves the truth. And that answer is the gospel message. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot permit any form of superiority or racism because we all come to the foot of the cross with the same problem. We all have an unglued human heart. And this is what Paul was getting at in Galatians 2 when he rebuked Peter for being untrue to the gospel. I'm reading to you from the New Living Translation. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised, but afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. 
The ground at the cross is level. Through the Son of God, many people come together from and form a new humanity. And so we see in the Christian experience a humanity that is both diverse, different backgrounds, languages, ethnicities, and unified, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So that in Christ we can celebrate our unity and also value our diversity. We can take joy in hearing the Indian believer sing the name of Jesus in Telugu. We can take delight in seeing a Korean congregation passionately praying for revival and then sending some from their midst out into the world. Or take joy in seeing a Togolese woman who finally gets struck in the heart by the gospel and says, I need to give something to God. And so she gives what's most precious to her, a chicken, into corporate worship at church. Or we can take joy in knowing that in Slovakia, the gospel is preached simultaneously in five languages, German, Russian, Slovak, English, and Czech. But it only works if it all funnels down to the person of Jesus. That's the big point of the message. Ray Steadman preached Genesis 10 and he titled this sermon, God's Funnel. As you know, a funnel is an instrument where you can take liquid or powder and you can take a broad array of it and condense it down into something smaller. That's what's happening here. Although we're seeing many nations in Genesis 10, God's first and most important promise, Genesis 3.15, the promise that he would send a seed to crush the head of Satan, is continuing from one man to another. Shem is the neck of the funnel. The line started with Adam. It goes to Noah, then to Shem, then to Peleg, eventually Abraham, then David, and then thousands of years later, climaxes, hallelujah, at Christmas, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. At the end of Genesis 10, we come face to face with Jesus Christ because he's the point of all the stories. The Bible always ends with Jesus. And if you don't find Jesus as you're making your way through the Bible, you're missing something significant. So here in 10, uh, nations in rebellion dispersing, who's going to reach all these people? And God says to a world in rebellion, I'm going to call out one from among you, and through his line, I am going to send my son who will come to this earth, live the life you can't live, die on the cross for your sins, rise again from the dead so that the nations can come back to me. God has arranged all events of history to bring his son to the world, which begs the question, what have you done with Jesus? Truth demands a response. If you don't connect with Jesus personally after hearing this, it's just an academic exercise. Do you know him? Anne Graham Lotz tells this wonderful story in her book, God's Story. A young woman named Elizabeth Carter was teaching English in China. Over the weekend, with some of her friends, they decided that they'd go to a holy mountain, Taichan, close to where they live, 
and that they would hike to the summit. As they were making their way to the foot of the mountain, there was an old Chinese beggar sitting at the side of the road, and Elizabeth just felt struck in the heart. I need to tell him about Jesus. But as she looked on down the road, her friends were getting further and further away, and so she just ignored the message, walked on. As she was making her way up the ascent, it just, the Holy Spirit just kept bringing the man's face back to mind, back to mind, and she regretted that she hadn't had that conversation. So she resolved in herself to make time to speak to him if she, he was there when she came back. When she reached the base of the mountain, to her eager surprise, the old beggar was still there, sitting exactly where he had before, and this time, she started talking to him. There's a God who created you. There's a God who loves you. There's a God who wants you to know him. She told the man about the God who had sent his son to the earth to die on a cross as a sacrifice for man's sin and that if he would place his faith in the Son of God, that God would forgive him for his sins and grant him eternal life. As Elizabeth continued telling the story of the old man, tears began to stream down his weather-beaten face. She thought, what, what have I done? Have I offended him? He said, no. I've worshipped him all my life. I just didn't know his name. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are or what family or group or clan or tribe or race or nation you come from, whether you grew up as a beggar in the streets of New Delhi or you're an exec in Wall Street, whether uh, you grew up in the farmland of Brazil or the, the concrete jungle of Chicago. It doesn't matter where you come from, married, single, male, female, rich, poor, young, old, healthy, or sick. The truth is, that your specific uh, circumstances don't change your fundamental need. You need God. The God who created you. The God who loves you. The God who has hardwired you to know him. And 3,264 people groups don't even know his name. His name's Jesus. What have you done with Jesus? Would you bow your heads with me?